catalyst, but it's a catalyst not because of the economics. It's a catalyst because peeps be done gone crazy. And when peeps be done gone crazy, that's irrational. An official quote. Peeps be gone crazy. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. When it was. Huh? <laughs> well, you know, people, Hello, are always like, people are always like, what it is. And so I figured yeah. I'd change the question. When it was. Yeah, how do you answer that one though? This is, you know, what's really overplayed these days is people going, "Yeah, it's been a minute." When it's like clearly three years since mm-hmm. whatever happened. Oh, well, it's been a minute since uh, we didn't have to wear a mask on our face. Uh, well, I use that all the time. I'm trying to trying to figure. Out <laughs> oh no! I just <laughs> unintentionally threw shade. <laughs> this is like terrible. That's, you that's just what the, that's just what the cool kids. That's what the cool kids do. That's what the cool kids say. I I actually, I mean, I I was into it for a while, but for me, it meant like somewhere between two weeks and six months or something. And now I feel like people are using it like it's a decade. Well, it's been a minute since it was 1999. And it's like, no, it's been a little more than a minute. man. So you've had an actual trans, like a minute to time translator. I I absolutely did. You did not. Classic. Nah. No. This reminds me, uh, Michael Mobison did this brilliant study where they broke down all these words like probably, likely, maybe, those type of words. And then they asked people to quantify a number value to what mm. that meant in terms of like a percentage of yes or no kind of. And they plotted all these things and showed the range of variation in how people interpret these nondescript words and like how confusing it can be for translating business scope or you know whatever the case may be these words that don't mean anything in the case of it's been a minute Dougals, like there's an actual <laughs> minute in there it's not like oh well probably speaking of it's been a minute it's been a minute since the big mac index came out oh yeah Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is perfect use because i think it's been around for 20 30 years <laughs> yeah it's like 30 years old <laughs> maybe maybe so. 50 years who knows <laughs> yeah uh we got we got some listener mail from john thank you uh about the big mac there it is about the big mac index uh it's been refreshed it's an index i think it's like 35 years old from the the economist and what it does it looks at the valuation of currencies around the world using the big the price of the big mac as the like uh, the main point of comparison, because if you think about in economics, you got uh, you got pricing parity, where you say two the same basket of goods in two different places should, in theory, cost the same amount. And yep. so, therefore, if they cost different amounts, and that's you can look at the different currencies. And so, the Big Mac is like er just like January. And so, because the Big Mac's everywhere, if you say let's what's the price of the Big Macs? What's going on? So, thank you, John, for sending that in. I thought this was interesting looking at it this year because we've been talking about Turkey, right, and whatnot. And it's just yeah. some of the the currencies are like biggity buck wild. I tell you, like so. If you look at, I'm looking at the bottom of this list. Russia, you got the ruble, seventy yeah. percent undervalued according to the Big Mac prices, which is so. 
what I'm going to do after the show is I'm going to start the spreadsheet that figures out how many big, big Macs I need to eat in order to pay for my flights mm. to Russia or Turkey and see <laughs> what <laughs> get some ROI on this, man. If I'm hungry for like 500 Big Macs, maybe it's worth hopping on a flight. There Don't it you is. Think? I love it. I love it. <laughs> this is um, really good. We'll put it on the Twitter. Um, but yeah, it's been around for a while. The thing I loved about this mini article is even the Economist magazine is like, we kind of made this as a joke 35 years ago, and now it's like a thing. But it's worthwhile. It's decent methodology, and it's nice to have another comparison tool when you talk about currencies being over or undervalued. I love it. I love it. I think it's fun. And looking at the international markets, I think is a lot of fun, too. Yeah. Well, you know, it's been a minute since, what what it, was it, Wednesday when the stock market went crazy? Man, and it's a continuation of stuff we talked about last week, right? Where it's people are at nighttime, which for the record is the right time. They're like, I'm going to buy all kinds of stocks. Things are going to go up. In the morning time, they're regretting their decisions and selling. Then the market actually opens and they love the stock market again. The, the stock market closes and they don't like it no more. Yep. That was what we were yep. talking about last week. But yes, this week, and the second piece of listener mail we got from Josh, this week, it continued and Snap, right? Snap Inc. <laughs> what a day. Like, what a day. Their, their, their price, the price of their, uh, their stock before they announced earnings during that day was down almost 30%. Yep. Because people was like, Facebook didn't do good, so no one can do good. Well, and announced- that was interesting. Like, the, yeah. just to jump in there, that whole... It speaks to the potential panic that lives in the stock market psyche. I guess mm-hmm. the human psyche today, yeah. Uh, because like, yeah, Facebook disappointed in a way, and they're spending way too much money on Meta in, on the metaverse, in my opinion, and all these other things. But the fact that it took out like all te- the whole tech sector as collateral damage is a little odd, because. Mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff that went down heavy is not really relatable to Facebook. In some cases, it's competitors where if Facebook is going down, it might be good for a Google. Now, Google did a bunch of random things, but like Amazon got hit initially and then rebounded like crazy. It was just a crazy week in the market. But yeah, this snap, the listener mail specifically, went down 24% during the day. And then after hours went up 51%, which is hilarious <laughs> because effectively it went up a little bit. Uh, like yeah. it didn't, it didn't do that much yeah. at the end of the day. It, 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 just it did everything and did nothing yeah, yeah, all, right. all at the same time. Yeah. It's, it's wild. One, one other wild thing related to meta is so Facebook now is about 18 years old. And this is the first, at least from, you know, the records that we see, this is the first time where their daily active users went down in a quarter, yeah. like ever. Let's just like, let's give a, a clap for that, you know, just uh, on its own. But it's like, that's a, that's a wild metric. The other thing I'll throw out that, that I think is interesting here is Facebook set the record on, that was Wednesday, I think you said? Something set like the, that. Midweek. Set, yeah, midweek. Set the record for the most stock market value ever lost in a day. Yeah. And then... Amazon the next day set the record for the most, the the highest stock market value ever gained in a day, which, I mean, if Bezos ever wanted to give the the middle finger to Zuckerberg, he kind of, I don't know if he ever did, but he did. Yeah. Like, do they like each other or not? Only, I can't, the only I can't one figure it. Referencing. <laughs> like they never bring up Andy Jassy, like ever. 
Yeah. It's it's still like, look what Bezos did. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Uh, when the bad stuff starts to happen, that's when Bezos will yeah. like remove his name from consideration. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, cool. Thanks for the listener mail. Always appreciate it. Uh, and uh, skippydoogles at gmail.com if any if you want to send the listener mail. And before we even get get started, go ahead and rate and review the podcast right now. Like you already heard the glory. Go ahead and do that. Always appreciate it. it helps people find us. Yeah, it really helps, guys. So uh, review, subscribe. We appreciate it. All right, Dougals, what's in your fishbowl? Okay, I'm going to start off with a little conversation about Kansas. Is that cool with you? Dude, I'm so excited for this. You have no idea. <laughs> okay, all right. So there was there was this cool piece in The Hustle, which I, I appreciate The Hustle. The Hustle always does this analysis on like random stuff out there in the world. Like uh, around the holidays, they did something on the, the market for poinsettias. And it's yeah. just like like things that you know we we wouldn't look at in our everyday life they journalistic courage on the hustle it, i mean oh. it pops up with stuff i find interesting that i never would have thought of and this article is a perfect example of that journalistic courage whoa that's a i love it i love it uh so they came out with this piece called would you take free land in rural america and the reason that it says that is because rural america is giving out free land and they are wondering <laughs> if you would take it it's a very straightforward <laughs> title here um, so there's several counties in Kansas that are giving away land because they're losing population. So they're trying to incentivize people to move there. And to give you a little, they gave a little bit of uh, Kansas land history um, in there. So I'll, I'll drop that. So way back in the day, right, back in 1860, there were 100,000 residents in Kansas. Over 30 years, it went to 1.4 million, right? This was during the period where Abraham Lincoln um, made the Homestead Act which basically said if you moved, um, if you took free land and you like worked on that land, built a house, that it could be yours five years later. Um, yep. And this was following James Polk, who had manifest destiny. He was like, America deserves to own it all, is what Polk said. And then he basically, he's like a president who made a promise. It was a kind of a ruthless promise for everyone else involved, but then like actually fully, fully kept that promise. Like he said, we will expand West and take it all. And he took like, <laughs> Mexico, like he got Texas and Kansas or in California from Mexico during that time. It was like ruthless. Anyway, so following that, I, 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 I divulge. Or I, I would say divulge. I diverge. So anyway. So How about Kansas, digress? <laughs> digress. I don't know what it is. I digress. So Kansas grew a heck of a lot during that period of time. But then uh, once agriculture was like no longer like the biggest like industry, it just started losing people. To give you some numbers, they threw out a few towns that have been losing folks over the last 20 years. Uh, there's a town called Peabody that lost 32% of its population. McDonald lost 29% of its population, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of, a lot of places are losing a lot of population. So well, let saying, me add to that, that the yeah. economies of scale as it relates to farming, these, these small family farms get consolidated into much bigger farms, which uh, drives – that's the way for your uh, farming operation to be competitive, which means you need less people per capita, um, is part of the dynamics of what's going on here, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And a couple numbers related to that is a farm. They had 167,000 farms in 1920. They now have 58,000 farms. So that's the decrease in farms. But the, the size of the average farm was 272 acres at the start and is now 784 acres. So that, that's exactly, exactly what yeah. you're saying. It's a consolidation. Spit and wisdom. Love it. Um, and so anyway, so they need, they need people to move there. And so they're giving away land. And the, the problem with this, because it sounds great, right? And there are some folks where, where it, 
it has like treated them pretty well. They moved there and they're like, oh, I was in San Francisco. Yep. It was buck wild crazy. Now this is great. The issue is that as an investment, it does not work. And so you have to, and I'll say a little bit more about that, but you have to actually want to live there. Like it makes sense for people that want to live there because you get the free land. But from an investment standpoint, the issue is that people buy the land, you build the house, and then it's not worth the amount of money that you now spend for the land and the house. Where some yep. places, if you get free land and you build the house, like the, the appreciation is so much that you can then sell that for more. But here you actually have to live there and there ain't no jobs. So like, well, yeah. So give us factoid, right? So they're willing to give away certain towns or just giving people lots. And they're like, this is your lot. It's absolutely free. Come build your house. And a few people have tried this. They build what would be considered a very affordable house in the large majority of America. Maybe they spend a hundred K on it. They go to get the thing appraised, which is probably happening because they would like financing for that. And the home appraises for 70 K and they're like, what the what? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I just I just spent a hundred thousand dollars worth of materials. Well, what's happening if I interpreted the the article correctly is the rest of home, the homes in that particular town are worth fifty to sixty, and they've been around for fifty to a hundred years, and some are dilapidated and some are vacant. And so you don't just walk into a place that has some struggles, throw down your roots, and immediately have that turn into a great investment. Especially, you know, it's it cycles downwards and it cycles upwards, right? So if they got a bunch of people to come in and that led to more jobs at the local coffee shop and uh, a startup scene or whatever, then all of a sudden things are gonna spiral in the right direction. But to get out of that downward spiral is very, very tough. And I, I feel like this relates to just having a good product. Like you have to have a good product. If you, if you create a company and, and then you say as marketing, we're going to say you get a free trial or you get something for free, right? And you come in, but your product isn't good, then people just leave. Like it's, yeah. that's, not a, that's not a way to sustain here. And the issue is getting to my, like my next level of, of what I take away from what you just said is that going back to the if people actually want to live there, you have to have the place that, that allows for sustainable living or desired living long-term. And then you can give away the free land. But yeah. just giving the free land is like, they have they have a movie theater in this town they were talking about, right? But I bet you it ain't got twelve movies, right? And I'm trying to I'm trying to see Sing Two, you know. I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to see yeah. Sing Two, so it's so true. Anyway, no, um, the, so the the personal side that cracks me up is whenever I have a, a rough couple months at work, I'm always like, I tell my wife, you know, like, hey, we're moving to post, uh, Portugal, Costa Rica, whatever. The l usual list of like. Uh, I'm we're going to retire tomorrow. Like, why are we putting up with the rat race? And uh, in recent years, you've heard about the free homes in Italy and all these other places. Well, it's just crazy to think that this exists in America with American schools and American police and American healthcare, And like, it's there, but it's still not really catching fire. It's still not a desirable option at this point in time, because so much is dependent on the amenities, the job possibilities the community and these places are struggling to create that and i wish there was an easy fix Dougal's kind of related did you hear about the community in california that's trying to brand themselves as a mountain lion sanctuary so they don't have oh. to deal with <laughs> did you hear about this i did talk, talk about it yeah i forget I the name of the that. community but but uh we talked a while back about i think it's connor daughtry it's woodside okay woodside yeah, yeah. 
fabulous piece in I think it was the LA Times, but he also has a book. Just like a, he is a guru on California real estate, and he talked about the backyard dwelling law that passed statewide. We did a deep dive on it, and it's so fascinating. Well, this community, a very wealthy community, Woodside, um, was like, no, that's not happening in our community. Like, we're not having people live in backyards here. It's the NIMBY, it's the not in my backyard thing we spent a whole episode on. And so somehow <laughs> they tried to call their entire town a mountain uh, lion sanctuary or some nonsense. So this rule doesn't apply to them. I'm curious as to how far they would go here. Like, would they actually make it a mountain lion? Would they rather, would they rather mountain lions roaming around so. <laughs> their town than be able to build these dwellings? This I picture um, like every third house having like baby deer grazing in the backyards <laughs> simply so they could get mountain lions <laughs> to come in to their backyards and destroy them. They're like... We'd much rather our eight-year-old be eaten by a mountain lion than have like some lower income folks living near us. This this relates so much to what we talked about last week from that Farnham Street piece where people get in their own way. It's yeah. like, because they, they're like, oh, this is going to be bad if we end up having these dwellings. So instead what we do is we're going to have deer everywhere. So the mountain lions then come so that you go, <laughs> hold on, now you've created, like now you've created a zoo, like and an African, unsurvivable African habitat. That you've created for yourself instead of like building a house <laughs> oh man I, oh, it's okay. just laughable like it's so much fun i and it it's amazing how frequently the themes we talk about on the show just come back around and come back around um yeah. they really are cyclical that way all right what's in your fishbowl i want to talk just a little bit about exxon and i i want to tie it into human psychology and, and so it's going to be a slightly personal story, but um, I, I hope to tie it home with the just I'll make it quick. So back in March 2020, when things fell off a cliff, there was two investments that were just too good to be true. One was uh, New York City real estate, and that was SL Green, and that was it had a nice return for me. And the other was uh, investments related to oil because oil fell off a cliff because no one knew what the demand was going to be. So I picked up Exxon at that time, and I was going through some stock picks today. I still hold Exxon in one of my accounts. Again, none of this is investment advice. I went and buy Exxon at these prices, obviously. But um, looked back at the chart, and and a story came to me. So I run a local investment group where we swap ideas about on a quarterly basis. And when this all happened, we got together and I, I swapped this idea. And so one of our less experienced investors picked up Exxon on my recommendation. And she held the thing and held the thing. And six months later, uh, the price of the stock hadn't gone anywhere. It, it went up and then it went down and then it went down, you know, like, and so she sold six months later, I think at a slight loss and was really frustrated with my stock pick. Well, what happened in the 18 months after that? Uh, oil prices are back near not all-time highs, but their oil prices are healthy. People think they might crush a, a hundred. Exxon's made a great return. Uh, the reason I tell that story is I see that happen all the time. I see someone pick up an investment idea that's maybe not their own that they don't have conviction in, and they don't know that just because you buy the stock doesn't mean it's going up immediately. You have to ride through the story of the nonsense and the mispricing. In this case, I'd call it a mispricing, can continue to happen for a long time. In some cases, it's a year or two before the market wakes up to the reality of things. So I don't know. I just wanted to throw that out because it hit me this week. 
and I think that's a pretty common story of people picking up a stock and not understanding, maybe not doing evaluation, not understanding what it's worth, or maybe just not really knowing why they own the thing. And that leads to trouble in my eyes. I love that story. I think it's a really important one. Thanks for thanks for sharing that. And I, I agree that having the the understanding of why you're buying, why you would sell. Uh, a rough or, timeline yeah, on when you yeah. might sell or mm-hmm. or a valuation, some sort of, I mean, we've talked about that before. Like, what's your exit point? Do you have some yeah. idea of that? Did you write it down? And it's part of where we're, um, you know, we're Eskimo equity brothers, whatever, right now with uh, Baba, right? Again, yeah. not investment advice, I think, right? But with that, right, like when we pick it up, it's because the price right now is like assuming that regulation and politics and everything doesn't ruin it. Like it, it to our perspective, right? It looks very favorable. Again, not yeah. investment advice, but that doesn't mean that like two months from now, anything is going to happen with it necessarily. Oh, like it, it, it right? might be down 30%. I mean, yeah. and so that's another, the, the thing we both run model portfolios with a quantitative tilt and, and that's important. And we've talked about that on other episodes, but the non-model stuff I've had hit for me recently. Uh, the other thing that was, I was thinking about this week is the investment hypothesis has been really, really simple on those things. Like oil prices went negative. Exxon in 2020 was at 1998 prices. I was like, I'm buying that thing. That's a simple hypothesis. When, uh, rents declined in New York City for the first time in 20 or 30 years. I bought a stock that held New York City real estate. I was like, that's one of the most desirable places in the world. That's a simple hypothesis. With Baba, it's a pretty simple hypothesis. The thing continues to grow, has nice economics, and it's super cheap. Like, uh, I don't know. I just was thinking about that week and wanted to bounce it off you because there's some learnings there that I can't fully articulate, but there's something there. Yeah. No, I think you did. A, I think you did a great job articulating it. You, you got to know when to buy or know when, when you, the why behind your buy, the why behind your sell. And to your point, like give it time because oftentimes with this stuff, not always, but markets have to shift. Like yeah. psyche has to shift and that can happen in an instant. Like the, um, the snap example where, yeah, yeah. You know, or it can happen over the course of like a year or two sometimes. Now you, you have to, you have to also say, how long am I going to give this? Because there's opportunity cost, right? And yep. capital. And so, you know, understand that. But I think it's a great story. All right, Diggles, go for it. What's next? Okay. Next in my fishbowl, I did some proprietary analysis. Oh, I'm so excited for this. We should have kicked off with this, Diggles. Sorry, man. Got to save Got to save the best for middle. This is um, uh, Skippy and Diggles trademarked. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you repeat any of this information, we'll sue. I can guarantee it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Not sure how. Um, <laughs> hey, but- I have a lawyer on staff. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, so this is a point that we brought up a lot and you'll read about a lot. Um, but to put it in some quantitative terms, I think is really important. And it's stay invested. Right. That doesn't necessarily mean in your uh, current like hypothesis. It doesn't necessarily mean anything specific, but just in general in the market. Right. It's important to stay invested. Why that is is because oftentimes returns can come from only a select few number of days, right? Just like the in the overall market, returns can come from only a select few number of stocks, right? In aggregate, right? Yeah. Um, and so I decided to say quantitatively, like, let's back that up. Let's see what that means. So here's what I did. I took 
20 years of stock returns of VTI, which is Vanguard's total market index. It's all the stocks that are in the US is what they try and replicate. So I took 20 years of data. So it's going from uh, basically 2001 through 2020, early 2022, but basically 2000, uh, 2021. Okay. So took every day's returns. And then I ranked it according to returns, like daily returns. And then just started taking away from the, the highest returns one day at a time to see how much of the overall return that we take away. Yeah. So that's the methodology. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. So there's going to be like a sous-son of a quiz up in here for you because why the heck not? So one is over that 20-year period, what was the total return? Like if you just look at aggregate, not taking anything off, just over that 20-year period, how much did VTI, the U.S. Oh, stock VTI. market? You know, well, the I overall stock market. You said 2001. I'm trying to get, did we start at the low or the high of like 99 to 2001? Did we start at the low? It's kind of, no, it's not quite the low because the low came in March of uh, 20 of 2003. So, so it's, I, I, it's like in the middle. So this is going to be a terrible guess. I just haven't looked at that in a while because to calculate in the 08 crash to say you started in the middle of the 01 crash. I mean, I know from... 2011 to now it's i would guess five times up. i don't know i'm gonna go four times up oh, nearly 6x um okay. so you're directionally correct 482 percent um, from the data that i looked at so almost okay. almost 6x so then if you look at not investing in i'm taking away one day at a time so yeah. just taking away one day right two days three days uh, we're going to continue with the quiz but i'm gonna give you a couple points first if you just take away the highest, highest day, how much of that total return do you lose? A little over 11%. Well, so hold, but, yeah, hold on. Let me make a point. <laughs> I'm taking over this quiz now, Diggles. Let me make a point. Tell me if you agree. You, you just keep talking about the highest percent returning day. Well, the time in which that happens matters greatly because if that happened in 2003, then you could compound on top of that huge gain from the day. If that happened yesterday, there's no compounding on top of it, right? So isn't this a multi-dimensional? There's there's several degrees of freedom here that matter. It's not only the magnitude. I, I, I get your point because like of the way compounding works. But my my point here is kind of um, you know, we've talked about Dalbar, right? The Dalbar studies in the past. Yeah. yeah. And how um, what Dalbar is saying is that individual investors aren't that great. And part of the rationale there is because of the timing of inflows and outflows. Mm -hmm. And so like that, that's more of a, it's like a, a simplistic look, but more of what I'm trying to say is if you, if you freak out and take your money out, right. And you're like, Oh, I'm really scared. Right. And then your money's out for two days. One, if one of those two days is yeah. one of these biggest days, and then you go back in, like you've now lost, if it was that one day, you would have lost 11% of what you would have gained overall. Yep. yep. So but yes, I, I hear you. So 11% one day which is pretty big two days 19.46 percent. you would have lost almost 20 percent if you were not invested in those two days you'd yep. have lost nearly 20 percent of your value all right here's the question how many days does it take until you lose half half your gains how many days total are in your subset it's 20 years so i think if you take out weekends we're talking about like about five thousand days let's go 80 days no, not, not so much. So this is not so much. So, and, and when I'm talking, just to be clear here, I'm talking about um, not total capital, but your gain here. 
So you'd lose half of your the gain, like yeah, the yeah, yeah. That, was, that was gained. That's what I'm talking about. You gained, if you were out for nine, the nine highest days. No, yes. no way. The nine highest days you would lose. Well, yeah, okay. And so, and let me clarify. So you said 480 something as your total gain. It would be 240 something if you yeah. missed the nine highest days. Yes. Wow. Look at yeah. that. It's, this, it's wild. This is what, and it's hard to comprehend this stuff, right? It's really wild. So if you, uh, you would lose it all after 33 days. So if you, if you like, it's not a month straight well, right? because it, they're like, but it's a little bit everywhere, but, but I'm just saying. You, that's you misleading all, you lose all your well what's the point because it's, it's the well point of, so here's the thing that i think we should do for next week's show unless you've already done it is talk about it from the negative side so if you are a person that wants to pull things out like what if you missed the 10 highest drawdown days what would your returns look like Ooh, i don't know i didn't, I didn't coming out a future episode perhaps yeah i mean it's easy enough to do i have the spreadsheet <laughs> so, yeah 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 um, I'll take a look at that. Yeah, we'll we'll bring okay. it back. We'll bring it back. I like that. Yeah, but it's so the point the point basically is just like you never know when these days are going to come, but because the stock market actually operates off of it's like very few stocks, right? Very few days that end up driving returns. And so and you don't know what those are going to be. So stay invested. Yeah. Um overall. That's that's kind of the point. Can I drop two more just two more data points on it? Yeah. Please. Um, so 33 days, right as I stated, is when you lose all of the gains. After 50 days, the top 50 days, you would lose half of your original capital. So those are the last two points that I throw out. I love it. So I have the perfect add-on to this. Diggles, we read lots of investing books together, don't we? Well, not together, but we separately, <laughs> yeah. and then we talk about them. <laughs> and when's the last time I told you that I read an investing book that I wasn't really into? Can you remember that? I, I kind of... No, I remember the last time I told you that I read an investment book I wasn't really into, but I cannot. <laughs> I don't know. Right, this leads to my story. I read The Dow Capital this week. Um, it's by Mark Sp Spitznagel. Mm, yep. Smart guy. Like him. He uh, is kind of famous for tail hedging strategies. Some people call it equity insurance. He's good buddy with uh, Nicholas Taleb. Um, so talking about black swan events. And this book had, had really good reviews. I'm going to go ahead and give a strong recommendation to pass on this one, man. It was really hard to follow, even mm. for an investing nerd like me. That said, I think of the 300 plus pages, there was like three or four that might be worth the admission. But but my my guidance would be to read the three or four pages and maybe skip the rest of it. So, so the just, reason I'm... Sorry. Yeah, go. I'm going to step in. So it's kind of the opposite of this, right? If you take away one page of that book you actually lose very little <laughs> all right continue it's a, yeah like so uh mark's book that's 300 pages you could take away 97 of them and still make all your gains <laughs> no i'm not throwing shade i'm sure he's a nice guy he's a very smart guy um has expertise that i don't have which is why i wanted to dive into his research i've read i read some articles and stuff he did and then that led me to the book so the key theme here is protecting against black swan events and equity insurance. And, and that's really interesting to me because if you crack that nut, which is really, really hard to do, um, the change to performance is potentially like a, a complete game changer, right? So here's some stuff I found interested in and let me throw some ideas off you and then, then tell me your thoughts, please. So one of the things he mentions when a black swan, it, when trying to protect, 
protect against a black swan. And Diggles, maybe we should define a black swan event. Do you want to give that a shot? Yeah, it's it's something that comes out of nowhere. It's the if you use Rumsfeld's Rumsfeld's uh, terminology, it's the unknown unknowns. Like he said, you have yeah. the you have the things that you know and you know that you know. You have the things that you that you know exist but you don't know, right? So those are like the known unknowns, and then it's the unknown unknowns. So the black swan is an unknown unknown, an event that comes out of nowhere that no one expected but changes everything. Yeah. So his thinking on this is really interesting. He's he's saying. They're typically not unknown unknowns. They're typically things that uh, people lose sight of kind of the force through the trees. And um, they they let their guard down collectively. It, as a society, we let our guard down with what was happening in real estate in uh, 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007. And only the people that were really paying attention saw the frothiness and the ramifications of that potential bubble. So he encourages buying something like equity insurance, not in all times, you know, we just talked about how great returns happen uh, on a daily basis and you have to be invested for those things, but having some sort of gauge of the market expensiveness and then strategically deploying insurance at times when that's in the fourth quartile, basically when it's on the expensive side of things. So I think that's really meaningful. And we we talk about CAPE ratio a lot and everything else and how it's not 100% predictive of future returns. But I liked that general approach of saying, I don't buy insurance, like I don't buy car insurance when I live in a town where no one else has a car because my chances of getting in a wreck are zero. You don't necessarily need equity insurance when the markets are at all-time lows, but it, when the markets are approaching all-time highs, it might be worth considering. When the froth exists out there, which is also likely, I would say, probably when people are least likely to do it. Yeah, it, it, right? uh, unfortunately, yes. Yeah. So then the Black Swan event, his rough definition, and, and maybe he's using different tech terminology but he says hey listen if equities go down 20 percent in two months i think most people think that's a pretty rare and pretty drastic drop and if you look at like a 50-year period it happens very infrequently if you look at a period when we're at these highly elevated levels of the market it could happen as much as two percent of the time so if you have insurance then what seems in people's mind, like an event that is so rare, it almost never happens is actually going to occur within the next two to three years. And I like that approach too. It's kind of keeping your eye on the ball around the true probabilities of these events that the human brain has a really hard time articulating the frequency of. Yeah, I, I get that. The one thing I'll, I'll throw out is, this is my belief. I know you've heard this from me before is that with regard to the stock market, what causes the stock market to drop that much usually are not things I would call black swans. They're like typical things yeah. that happen. They just happen to the, to the point you're bringing up. They just happen when the market's really fragile. It's like the common thing occurs. Like an interest rate increase is like not a, 
that's not that's not a black swan event especially no. if you're going no. if you're going from zero percent to i don't know where we're gonna go 0.25 percent or something like that like that's not a black swan event like oh what the fed is touching interest rates yeah that is what they do like that that is the thing that they do but it's just when you do it when it's fragile it has different ramifications yeah and in a way you're i think you're doing a bet- better job articulating the point than than me but the point is a uh, 20% jo- drop over two months in 2011 is much, much less likely than a 20% drop over two months in 2022. And if you're not thinking about that, I think you should be. Now, actually enacting this, his equity insurance approach is really complicated and and not at all for your average investor or even our average listener. So I'm not going to go into those details, but I guess I just wanted to mention it because it's something I'm trying to do a deep dive on to better understand because if you, if events like that are completely mispriced and you as an investor are thinking about those things, you can take advantage of other people's naivety and, and turn it into great protection. So it's just an intriguing idea for me. I think it is intriguing. And even without the mechanics and the mechanics, as you mentioned, are complicated. But if you take away even the tactical implementation, I think the psychology that you're bringing up on its own is valuable for for folks that are investing to have. Just being able to understand like the fragility that exists at the top and why something like this would make sense there. Right. Um, I think I think it's pretty important. And it it relates. Yeah. Yeah, Go ahead. Well, I mean, the fun tieback, let's let's switch it. Uh, from a, just a psychological perspective, if you're a person that really wanted to buy Facebook stock and always thought it was too expensive, you know, because the market is so volatile right now, if your target price was 240 bucks, you can add that to por- your portfolio. You just needed to have a little cash on hand to be able to do that. So um, that frame of mind should help you pick up some bargains at some point over the next couple of years when people overreact to things. Now, with Facebook specifically, I'm not claiming that's an overreaction because I don't know that I still like the investment hypothesis, just to be clear on that. But yeah, the psychology piece is, is more important here. And related, with like kind of tying this back to the conversation we, we just had on the staying invested point is, do you know what year of those last 20 years had the most like highest gain days oh probably like oh three it's you're you're or in the right nine or something you're in the right time frame 2000 like um the right psych- psychology 2008 so of the if you look at the um the 33 days that i mentioned which is where you lose all of the gain right yeah. 11 of those 33 days happened in 2008 and that's the time that people who freaked out are most likely to have sat out of the market. Exactly. And they, so they felt all the pain from falling off a cliff in 2007, and they got very little of the um, coming back to the real world in 2008. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens. So you, people freak out. So they take the money out, you lose those days, and then you get back in. And psychologically it is nearly impossible for human beings to understand what they just did like it's yep. so 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 hard i i've read this book recently that i think it's like i wouldn't put it on the recommendation list unless you like really like numbers so like it's not like something i throw out uh recommendation but if but i think it's really valuable for someone that just wants to um understand how to how to use and storytell 
um, with numbers and yeah. it's making numbers count is the name of the book. Like, and it's a, it's a relatively short book too, but basically what the, all the, all the book does is try and take what we just mentioned of how human beings like cannot comprehend like numbers particularly well and say, here's how you can frame numbers to help people understand them better. Um, which I think is like, a, it's actually a valuable skill, even like in the business world, if you're putting a yeah. presentation on hugely valuable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, making numbers count. Interesting book. But yeah, we cannot, like, we just can't understand that kind of stuff. But that's what we do. Our psychology is often against us. Yeah, I love it. Can we talk Wordle for a second? Are you ready to switch gears? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's dive, dive straight into the Wordle fishbowl. Let's do it. Have you played? Yes, I have. I have. Not, not a lot. I've played two games of Wordle myself. Uh, okay. and, I mean, and my wife has tried one. Out. So collectively as a family three games it seems it seems good right i think the least surprising thing that happened is the new york times bought it because that's part of the new york times business model is the gaming piece i can't believe that someone else like the la times or the wall street journal didn't buy it and maybe there was a bidding war for it but here's my question about where this is a very stupid question i'm gonna apologize in advance how is this like proprietary technology like you can google wordle and find 75 different websites it seems that all will let you play because it's a very simple interface to build it's a very simple idea so is the new york times going to go around suing people for this idea like how how is there a moat around this business is what i don't understand i'm not sure that there is much of a moat but i mean what this is so the the brief story as i understand it of wordle for those that have that haven't read the history the very brief history of Wordle is there is a software engineer who built this game for his wife yep. during the pandemic because she was bored. Like that, that's as I understand it. And when this happened was late in 2021. So it like hit the the internet, I think like in early November, or late October, something like that of 2021. So he just built this for his wife, put it on the internet, right? I think the reason I, I give that that history there is because I don't think they're buying the technology. It's just that from... When it first hit, I think day one, it had something like a couple hundred people that used it. And yep. now it's got millions of people. And I think they're yep. just saying like, this already has millions of people. And so it's not about the, the tech behind it, but it's unlikely that anything else will get millions of people to use it because they're the same. And so I think that they're just, they're just buying like the... Well, it's the, the, the Facebook no- idea around WhatsApp when they did the acquisition. They're just like, yeah. there's a ton of users. We'll figure out how to monetize later. But my question is more when I want to play Wordle and... I don't want to pay the New York Times. I mean, it's free right now, but at some point it would have to be behind their paywall for it to be worth the 10 million or whatever they paid for it. Like, I think I'm just going to go to another website that does the exact same thing, but I could be crazy. Yeah. I mean, I'm a value investor too. Dougal's will be like, can I pay a hundred dollars a month for this? They might send out some cease and desist. That'll scare some people, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I'm skipping that. I'm skipping that. Uh, Speaking of value investors, though, here it comes. <laughs> Speaking of value investors, so I've got I've got two. They're quick from my end, but you could you could uh, choose to grab on. But guess who else is a value investor now? Uh, hopefully, like your wife, your son. <laughs> no, 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 not in this house. You, <laughs> not it's not allowed in our house. <laughs> um, our good friend Kathy Wood. So what? Is, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm going to. Okay. But I just, I just want to read one thing because, so she's not actually a value investor. It's just that this, this statement that, uh, that, that I found in this wall street journal piece that she said, like, it'll, 
it'll remind you of something. Let me just put it that way. So Kathy Wood says the high risk stocks in the exchange traded funds sold by ARK Investment Management LLC are so cheap that they will inevitably rise. In oh, oh, no. <laughs> but just take that, take that, uh, that piece. So she went, like, if you go to the, the growth investor, which is like, that's actually where she lives. If you go to what she was saying, that is typical gross in growth investment language, right? It's, yeah. there's so much innovation. These are the industries that will rule the day, yeah. dot, dot, dot. So they're going to rise. My portfolio is going to be 40% a year, right? That, that's what she was saying. Now she's using like reversion to the mean growth invest or sorry, um, a value investment language. She's like, well, they're so it's not, it's not about innovation. They're so cheap. They're obviously going to go up. Like <laughs> it's who are you and what did you do with the intelligent investor? Well, I mean, even, even my stocks that are, are actually so cheap, like, that you could have stocks that are selling for less than their total book value or like less than the cash on hand. It doesn't mean they're inevitably going to go up, at least in a short time frame. Like it's just not that's not how it works. But she's just smarter than me, I guess, dude. Let's just leave it there. There's some, Kathy some paradigm. We need to get her has. on the show. She I mean, I know we haven't been doing many guests recently, but I think we could have some fun with Kathy Wood. <laughs> maybe, maybe. All right, one other, I'm going to drop one other quote for you, okay? This also I saw in the Wall Street Journal, but this is from Cliff. So it's a little, little, bit, little bit different. He runs uh, AQR. So this quote, it's, it's, got, it's got like fancy language in it, right? That I think this is so beautiful. <laughs> um, it's amazing. He's, he's talking about bond yields, like in the, the recent bond yield rise and like why that's shocking the system, right? Is what, that's what he's talking about. He says, it's a catalyst, not because of solid economic reasons, but because catalysts for when irrationality will blow up are behavioral magic, not economics. Okay. Say it one more time. It's deep. Yeah. I want to fully again. digest it. I'm going to say the quote again. I'm going to get your response and give you mine. Okay. So this is about bond yields, bond yield rise. It's a catalyst, not because of solid economic reasons, but because catalysts for when irrationality will blow up are behavioral magic, not economics. Yes. Br yeah, it took it took me two times, but it's brilliant in all the context that lives in that. And the tie to investor psychology is really smart. Yeah, I think it's really smart. And this it comes in this piece where they're they're looking at like as we've talked about, right? When uh, bond yields go up, the price of bonds go down, right? And so, and but when bond yields go up, it in theory, from an economic standpoint, says that Tina starts to head out the front door because now there might be an alternative, right? You can yeah. say I can get out of expensive stocks, I can get into yields, yeah. even if that yields like 0.2, but I can get into yields, right? And so, the, so it's like this economic argument, right? That's being made in this article. And I just love this because he's like, yeah, this is a catalyst, but it's a catalyst, not because of the economics. It's a catalyst because peeps be done gone crazy. And when peeps be done gone crazy, that's irrational. An official quote. Peeps be gone. Be gone. 
but yeah, I think it's brilliant. He's just like, when, when the markets are irrational, it's about behavior. It's not about economics. So like you can make all the economic arguments you want, but this is just like, people are out there in the wilderness, right? Naked. And so maybe they're in the, they're in the ocean. Like Buffett said, they're in the ocean. Yeah. Naked. Yeah. Yeah. And when the tide goes out, tide goes out. Yeah, yeah exactly. So what, why are they in the woods? I don't know why they're in the woods. Anyway, I thought it was really like, I, I love that quote. Let's just the smartest thing said on the show. Hopefully it, it's probably better. It's probably more fun to be naked in the ocean than it is naked in the woods. It's my personal take. No mosquitoes, probably warmer. I think that's true. I think that's true. Which explains uh, why so many people are swimming naked in the ocean until the tide goes out. And then you don't swim Buffett, Buffett buys them all clothes. I mean, that's exactly what he does. He's like, oh, here's some clothes. They only, it's $1,000 a t-shirt. Um, <laughs> one last thing just on my end is uh, there's a business breakdowns on Twitter uh, that I thought was really good. Twitter's a great community for investing specifically, but very interesting company history, which they dive into. And Twitter growth, um, revenue growth has been crazy since IPO Dougals. The stock has actually uh, lost money. So it's just a very interesting case. It's so different from a social media stock like Facebook, yet it's similar. Um, That's a good podcast if you're looking to check something out. Also, one other thing quickly, unless you had a response for that. Special shout out to our friends at Cozy Wines who just won the gold medal in the San Francisco Chronicle Wine Competition. Nice work, Corey. Yeah. And if you're looking to find us, we're now in one place, skippydougals.com. Obviously, you can find us on Twitter, at skippydougals, Gmail, skippydougals at gmail.com. We love the listener mail. Keep it coming. And as we mentioned previously, please uh, rate and review the show. Thanks so much. Yes.